Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing pretty good. I've been thinking a lot lately, it comes up later in the episode, spoiler alert, about my favorite moment in literature, which is, of course, from the Ernest Tidyman novel Shaft, about which several movies have been made now, in which the title character, Shaft, is thinking about a case that he's working on, and as he is standing on the sidewalk, he absentmindedly orders and eats seven hot dogs without noticing it. It is not until the hot dog vendor asks him for money that he realizes that he has eaten so much as a hot dog, let alone seven of them. And did I forget to mention a container of orange juice? Because he drank that too. As I said, it is, I'm pretty sure, my favorite moment in literature. And I feel like it's a real missed opportunity that it wasn't included in any of the cinematic adaptations of Shaft. I like to think that in maybe an early draft of the Isaac Hayes theme song, there is a reference to it made. Like, who's the cat that won't cop out when there's danger all about? Shaft! Can you dig it? Who is the man who ate seven hot dogs while standing on a street corner and didn't even realize it until the hot dog vendor asked him for money? Shaft! Wait, I'm sorry, what? I know, right? They say this cat Shaft is a bad mother. Uh, I'm sorry, can we get back to the hot dog thing? Because I'm still processing that. So yeah, like I said, I like to believe somewhere out there there's a draft of the song where that was included. But as it stands, the weirdest thing about that song is that there's a part where it sounds like Isaac Hayes is saying that John Shaft is dating a woman named John Shaft. At least that's how I like to interpret the part where it goes... He's a complicated man, and no one understands him but his woman. And then the backup singers go, John Shaft. But I'm getting off topic. The important thing is that Shaft ate seven hot dogs and drank a container of orange juice in a fugue state. And it is the best thing that has happened in any book. But we're not here to talk about the time that Shaft ate seven hot dogs while standing on a corner without realizing it. At least we're not here to exclusively talk about that. Like I said, it does come up again later in the show. But we're also here to talk about a comic book. So, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Mark Paglia. And, damn, he is really putting me through my paces here. Okay, here goes. I am the very model of the master of the mystic arts. I'm known to Hub and Cory, whose minutia involves eating farts. I summon non-team members with my interrupting astral form. They come on silver surfboards and a flying horse named Aragorn. I'm very well acquainted with the Hulk, Hellcat, and Satan's son. I go from deep Atlantis to the office of one Kyle Richmond. From far Asgard, I call upon the sword-flat-swinging Valkyrie to supplement my non-team's evil-thwarting battle strategy. Although I could go on with my accomplished self-analysis, it now is time for Hub to read you yet another synopsis. In shortened matters of this naughty man and super power parts, I am the very model of the master of the mystic arts. Whew! Thanks, Mark. Defenders, number 95. May, 1981. 
The Vampire Strikes Back. Written by J.M. DeMatteis, drawn by Don Perlin, inked by Joe Sinnott and Al Milgram and Frank Giacoa, lettered by Diane Albers, colored by George Russos, and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. Hellcat. Valkyrie. Doctor Strange. Son of Satan. Nighthawk. The Gargoyle. Clea. Wong. And... Dracula? That's gotta be a typo. Previously in the Defenders. A reality-threatening event forced Steve to reach out to his old friend Damon Hellstrom, a.k.a. Son of Satan, for assistance. The devil-dadded demonologist was quick to agree, partly because reality was where he kept all his stuff, but mostly because he had recently unearthed a matter of dire importance, which directly involved the Defenders. Unfortunately, before the Hellspawn hero had the opportunity to discuss the issue with his new non-teammates, they were distracted by the fact that Nighthawk had fallen prey to a mysterious mystical malady which nearly killed him and left him paralyzed from the neck down. Doctor Strange gave the bewildered billionaire do well a quick once-over and proclaimed the condition to be both permanent and untreatable. Before Steve got a further opportunity to demonstrate his questionable bedside manner, Wong informed the team that Namor had just invaded and conquered England, and that maybe they should have a little chat with him. Steve, Damon, Val, and the Hulk headed off to London to have an intervention for their aquatic ally about this latest bout of his occasionally aggressive imperialism, leaving a convalescent Kyle in the care of Clea and Wong. Kyle wasn't the only defender to sit out this round of world-saving either. Patsy Walker, a.k.a. Hellcat, was still mourning the death of her estranged mother, Dorothy. The forlorn feline was lamenting her loss in the suburban home her late mother had bequeathed her when a mysterious figure emerged from the shadows and kidnapped her. Apparently, at some point during the brief struggle preceding her abduction, the cat-costumed crime fighter managed to leave a message at the Sanctum Sanctimonious, alerting her fellow defenders as to her predicament. When they returned from their overseas adventure, Valkyrie, Steve, and Damon headed to Patsy's house to investigate the cryptic distress call. The heroes found that Patsy's home had been burned to the ground, and in the wreckage was a badly injured Dolly Donahue, the walker's long-suffering housekeeper. On their way to the hospital, Dolly informed the defenders that Patsy had been carried off by a gargoyle. As he had flown away with his victim, the grotesque creature had turned to lob a fireball at the house, incinerating the home and nearly killing Dolly. After depositing the ailing housekeeper in the emergency room, Son of Satan figured this was as good a time as any to fill the rest of the gang in about the matter he'd been meaning to tell them about before he got distracted by all the Kyle paralysis, Namor thwarting, and Patsy kidnapping. A while ago, Damon was doing an exorcism and found out about a sextet of demons who had gotten together and decided that they would be more powerful if they lived together as creepy finger puppets on a giant gross hand. This unsettling fistful of fiends, which referred to themselves collectively as the Six-Fingered Hand, was for some reason obsessed with destroying the Defenders. The gang reckoned that this was good to know and probably relevant to their current predicament, but they had little time to process the information before flying off to the small town in Virginia where Hellstrom's infernal GPS informed him that Patsy had been taken. Meanwhile, back at the Sanctum, Clea went in to check on Kyle but found that his bed was empty. When she looked out the window, the surprise sorceress saw something that totally freaked her out. And this is a woman who's seen Steve's browser history, so it must have been something pretty unsettling. A short while later, Val, Damon, and Steve arrived in Christianboro, Virginia, 
where in the seemingly idyllic community's town hall, a sinister ceremony was taking place. The gargoyle who had kidnapped Hellcat was performing a ritual to sacrifice the young hero's soul to Avarish, one of the demonic members of the six-fingered hand Damon had been warned about. Oh no! The trio of defenders attempted to intervene but found themselves beset by a horde of minor demons led by the gargoyle. Our pissed-off protagonists easily trounced the hellish host of attackers, and the gargoyle fled. Hooray! But the victory was a short-lived one, for although the gargoyle may have been defeated, the malignant piece of Baroque masonry had finished his fiendish task, for the defenders found themselves confronted by a decidedly different version of Patsy Walker than the one they had been expecting. This new Patsy was a more literal interpretation of the name Hellcat, and was imbued with both demonic powers and feline attributes. She beat the living shit out of both Steve and the Son of Satan, before turning her attentions to Valkyrie with murderous intent. But Val turned the tables on her erstwhile amiga by refusing to fight her, and instead reminding Patsy of the friendship they once shared. Confronted by this kindness, Patsy snapped back to normal, which gave Steve and Damon the opportunity to exorcise the demon Avarish who had been inhabiting her form. Hooray! Now that Patsy was no longer possessed, the quartet of crime fighters questioned the locals, who immediately informed them that if any infernal skullduggery was afoot, it was no doubt the handiwork of one Isaac Christians, an octogenarian who had once been a prominent citizen, but had recently been dabbling in dark magic and demonology. The defenders led an angry mob to Isaac's mansion and were surprised to find that instead of the elderly man they expected, Isaac was, in fact, the gargoyle that they had so recently fought. Between his sobs of self-pity, Isaac explained that he had agreed to kidnap Patsy for Avarish and perform the ritual sacrifice in exchange for a promise that the town of Christianboro would experience economic prosperity. Avarish had transformed him into the gargoyle so that he could better perform his duties, but had gotten fed up when Isaac balked at performing some of his more evil chores. As punishment for his insubordination, Avarish decided to leave his aged acolyte in this hideous form permanently. After offering a half-hearted apology for all the kidnapping, attempted murder, and demonic rituals he had done, Isaac asked to join the defenders. Steve was like, sure, why not? And the gang prepared to head back to the sanctum. For some reason, after being possessed by a demon and having her kidnapper be granted membership to her super team, Patsy seemed a bit out of sorts. Son of Satan asked what her deal was, and Patsy informed the Satan-sired superhero that while she was all demoned up, she learned that prior to her death, her mother, Dorothy Walker, had sold Patsy's soul to Avarish. Gadzooks! Were there any extenuating circumstances to the late Miss Walker's demonic daughter dealing? What did Clea see outside Kyle's window that startled her so badly? And how will the Defenders follow up on extending an offer of membership to a person who just kidnapped one member and tried to murder the rest? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Only if you consider the fact that she's an asshole an extenuating circumstance. Kyle being a jerk which you'd think would be somewhat less than startling by now, and by teaming up with Dracula. Yeah. Turns out that wasn't a typo after all. The Defenders, including their questionable new recruit, the Gargoyle, return to the Sanctum Sanctimonious and are alarmed to find that the front door is ajar. 
Steve is pretty sure that if this breach of security was the result of demonic intervention, his Stevie sense would be tingling. But Son of Satan isn't so sure. The perfidiously parented protagonist is like, There's clearly a great evil at work here. And I should know, because I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but my dad just happens to be... Before Damon can complete dropping his devil dad's nefarious name, he's interrupted by a glib voice, which mocks his penchant for melodrama. Zing. Damon, if it makes you feel any better, they say that abject mockery is the most sincere form of flattery. Our heroes head inside to see if they can identify the source of this impudence. But, in the darkness, an agile form flies around them, knocking them to the ground, and seemingly taking great delight in eluding capture. Eventually, Valkyrie manages to grab the mysterious menace by the ankle and hurls him to the floor. Could this intruder be the evil blood-sucking fiend whose name showed up in the defensive lineup? Yes, it is. Clea turns on the light in the foyer, and the defenders see that their assailant is none other than wealthy industrialist Kyle Richmond. Oh, you thought I meant the other kind of bloodsucker. No, he doesn't show up for a while yet. The defenders are more than a little bit confused by this turn of events. When they last saw Kyle, he was unable to move. They ask him what gives, and the boisterous bird enthusiast responds, Don't know, don't care. All I know is I'm all better now, and I'm definitely going to stay that way forever. Steve gives the affluent avian aficionado a once-over, and is like, Hmm, looks like the nonsense that made you as strong as two strong men at night has gotten mixed up with whatever nonsense took away your ability to move around, and they must have cancelled each other out. Kyle is like, whatever. Seems like you heard the don't know part of my answer, but not the don't care part. Hey, Patsy, why aren't you more stoked than I'm all better? You're not still bummed out about your mom dying, are you? It's been like a week. I heard about this terrific grief counselor named Donna Troy. Maybe I could make you an appointment with... Wait a minute. I'm not great at noticing things about people who aren't me, but is the Hulk looking smaller, oranger, and more gargoyly than usual? The gang introduces Isaac and quickly fills Nighthawk in on the events of the last issue. When they get to the part about the six-fingered hand, Kyle perks up and is like, Say... Do you think those demons are the ones that zapped me with the almost dead beam? That I'm now all the way better from forever? Steve is like, um, probably, I guess. A few minutes later, the sun rises and Kyle collapses to the ground, once again unable to move. Turns out his newfound all-betterness was tied more directly than they had realized to his nocturnal prowess. So at night, he has the strength of two strong men, and during the day, he has the strength of no strong men. So it kind of averages out, I guess. All things considered, Kyle adjusts to this new reality pretty quickly. His non-teammates carry him back to his guest room. Soon after the now diurnally debilitated do-gooder is safely situated in bed, Patsy receives a disturbing call. It's from the hospital in Montclair, New Jersey. Dolly Donahue is in critical condition, and they do not expect her to survive. Upon receiving this news, Patsy gets super pissed and lashes out at the gargoyle, attacking the startled Virginian. Hey, Patsy, I know you're upset, but it's not fair to take all your anger out on Isaac just because he threw a fireball at Dolly for no reason, causing a house to collapse on her, and now it looks like she's going to die from it. Actually, you, you know what? I, I guess it is fair. 
Carry on. As Hellcat strangles him, Isaac apologizes for his wrongdoing, until eventually Patsy either gets tired or realizes that gargoyles don't have windpipes in the traditional sense. Her fury turns to grief, and she collapses in tears. The next day, Patsy has Damon Hellstrom accompany her to her mother's gravesite so that he can help her get to the bottom of this whole mom-trying-to-sell-her-soul business. When they get to the ceremony, Hellstrom changes into his devil dad duds and points his magic pitchfork at Dorothy's headstone. He says some magic stuff, and after a few seconds, a vision appears in a swirl of hellfire above the grave. It's Dorothy Walker, lying in her hospital bed as she dies of cancer. Suddenly, the demon Avarish appears at her side and is like, Hey lady, if you promise me Patsy's soul, I'll let you live. Dorothy is like, yeah, okay. Then she dies. Apparently, if Valkyrie hadn't been able to friendship the demon out of Patsy last issue, then the deal would have been complete. Patsy would be damned to hell, and her mom would have risen from the grave and not had cancer anymore. It's pretty distressing for Patsy to see all this. Also, it's not like any of that is new information. I mean, Patsy already knew all that from when she was possessed. Watching it happen in a vision is like watching the 1998 remake of Psycho if you'd already seen the original. Redundant and kind of masochistic. At least this vision doesn't have Vince Vaughn in it. Damon goes to give Patsy a reassuring hug, but then remembers how bad he is at that and lets her grieve in peace. Later that night at the Sanctum, Valkyrie is chilling in her room when a vision of a couple of her old Valkyrior buddies from back in Valhalla appears before her. They're like, hey Val, we're gonna go do some badass Asgard shit. Wanna come with? Val is like, no thanks, I'm good here. The other Valkyries are like, okay. And the vision fades away. Fair enough. Shortly after this surprisingly straightforward interaction, the Defenders gather in Steve's living room to go over what little they know about the six-fingered hand. It doesn't take long. Basically, they're six fairly minor demons who got much more powerful when they decided to band together. Nice object lesson about the power of unions, but not a lot to base a counterattack on. The debriefing session is cut short when motherfucking Dracula busts in through the window and starts smacking the shit out of everyone. Well, that was unexpected. Or at least it would be if I hadn't seen the cover. But still, Dracula! Hooray! Steve watches the battle and is like, Hmm, Dracula seems a bit off. Normally, he'd be brutalizing Kyle and Valkyrie with a lot more panache than this. Damon, does Dracula seem a bit off his game? Son of Satan is like, Yes, normally he would never use a western grip to strangle Patsy. It's a bit passé for him. Acting on a hunch, Steve casts a spell to hold the Lord of the Vampires in place and has Damon perform a makeshift exorcism on the fiend. When he does, the astral images of several demons flee from Dracula's head. The vampiric villain shakes himself off and goes back to being his usual level of super evil and murderous. Drac is like, What the fuck? I was hanging out in my castle doing regular Dracula shit. Then all of a sudden I was here fighting you assholes. What gives? Son of Satan is like, Okay, first of all, fuck you. I don't know if you knew this, but my dad, who I totally hate, 
is Satan, and he is way better at evil than you are, and could totally beat you up. B, I'm pretty sure you were possessed by demons, and I just sent them packing, so three, you're welcome, and D, fuck you. Dracula gets all huffy about this and is about to go back to slapping around defenders, but Steve is like, Calm down, Dracula. I suspect we have more in common than merely our taste in dramatic capes. I believe we may share a sextet of demonic enemies. Steve fills Drac in on the six-fingered hand, then shows the Transylvanian tyrant a vision of what is transpiring in his castle during his absence. It turns out, a demon named Puishant, who is one of the jerks who is splitting the rent six ways on a giant hand, has made a deal with one of Dracula's underling vampires, a slobbery jerk named Gordski. The six-fingered hand wanted to form an alliance with the vampires, but were worried that Dracula could be too much of a wild card as their king. So they told Gordski that if he promised to do whatever they told him to, he could be the new king. That sounded good to Gordski, so the hand took over Drac's mind for a minute and sent him to attack the defenders with the hope that they would all kill each other. When Dracula learns of Gordski's betrayal, he is predictably pretty pissed off at both Gord and the Six-Fingered Hand. Steve suggests that they join forces, go to Dracula's castle, and kill all the traitorous vampires there to thwart their demonic enemy's plans. Dracula is like, Okay, fine, but only if you promise not to murder me. Son of Satan isn't crazy about this stipulation. He's like, Hmm, I'd really like to murder you. Are you sure there's no wiggle room on this not-killing-you thing? Dracula's pretty set on not being murdered, and eventually Damon reluctantly agrees to the condition. Steve decides to hang back in the sanctum so that he and Clea can try to locate the Six-Fingered Hand's home dimension, but he teleports Dracula, Valkyrie, Son of Satan, Nighthawk, Hellcat, and the Gargoyle to the front yard of Dracula's castle. Slowly, the uneasy allies approach the gate, where they're suddenly ambushed by the Legion of Undead Warriors led by Gordski. Oops. Turns out the Six-Fingered Hand knew that they were coming. The outnumbered defenders struggle valiantly and manage to kill a whole bunch of vampires, but eventually they are overwhelmed and begin losing ground to their vampiric adversaries. A trio of vampires has Hellcat cornered and is about to start chomping down on her, but Gargoyle jumps in and rescues her. Elsewhere in the castle, Dracula squares off against Gordski. Normally, Drac would make short work of the would-be usurper to his throne, but Gordski has been granted extra strength by Puishant and appears to have the upper hand. Before Gordski can finish off his legendary foe, Dracula is called away from the battle by his reluctant ally, the Son of Satan. Damon Hellstrom is like, Hey, asshole! Follow me! I've got a plan! Dracula is like, Is your plan to yell at everyone about who your dad is? Hellstrom is like, no. Dracula is like, does this plan involve murdering me? Damon is like, well, not anymore it doesn't. Son of Satan leads his allies and all their attackers to the outside of the castle. Once everyone is in the courtyard, he raises his trident over his head. Through gritted teeth, he turns to Dracula and says, you'd better get out of here if you don't want to get murdered. With a sneer, the Lord of the Vampires turns into a bat and skedaddles. Then, Damon starts chanting. The air shimmers and changes colors, and then, hours ahead of schedule, the sun rises and all the vampires burst into flames. Hooray! Nighthawk collapses to the ground and is like, 
What happened? Damon explains that he coordinated telepathically with Steve, and together they conspired to move Castle Dracula and all those within three hours into the future. Patsy is like, Then why the fuck did you let Dracula go? He's just gonna murder thousands more people now. Son of Satan is like, Yes, probably, but the important thing is, I didn't lie. Which means that deep down, I'm a good dude after all. Which will really piss my dad off. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but he's the devil. Well, Damon, I'm sure the fact that you refrained from fibbing will really console all of the future widows and orphans that Dracula's gonna make. Nice job, buddy. To be continued. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. It's Friday evening, and it's been a sunny day, and I've got a, a cold beer. That's pretty good. Yeah, those are all nice things. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. It's my birthday tomorrow. That's weird. It's not like it's a super big deal birthday, although I am turning Danny Ainge's jersey number, so that's kind of an important one. Hmm. I don't know Danny Ainge's jersey. Well, now I do, I guess. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to entering my Danny Ainge's jersey number year. That's a nice way to put it. Thanks. You know, you could do it like a matrix of all the different sports and sport jersey numbers for the athletes that you liked for mm -hmm. the... Actually, how high did those numbers go? See, I don't know. It, they used to only go to 55 so that the referee could show on each hand the first digit and the last digit of the jersey to show who got the foul. But they stopped doing that because I know, like, Dennis Rodman was, like, 90-something. So mm -hmm. I don't even know anymore. Damn. That's too bad, because that makes a lot of sense, the way they used to do it. And then just anything after 55 would be your Sammy Hagar years. <laughs> Good call. Well, you ready to talk about a comic book? Let's do it. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? I wanted to like this comic book a little bit more than I did. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh, I actually really dug this. What were your problems with it? You know, I thought it was fine, but I also felt like it took a lot of words and a lot of pages to basically explain why Kyle could get out of bed, mm -hmm. to remind us Patsy's mom is bad. Right. And that the demons are still out to get the defenders. Yeah, and then, halfway through the comic, here's Dracula! Right. And I think that was my problem with it was the here's Dracula bit was like, well, shit, okay, we got those three points out of the way. So the demons are using Dracula. That's it. You know, I guess it was just an excuse for kind of a battle royale, which was cool. Yeah, I get what you mean. It did seem like it was maybe a company mandated Dracula crossover or something. But you get the promise of Dracula on the cover. And then it did have that. Kiss versus Phantom of the Park feeling where 
Kiss doesn't show up in that movie until what seems like two thirds of the way through the film. So there was there was a certain, you know, waiting for Dracula feeling. One of Beckett's lesser known works. Yeah, the scene in which he shows up and slaps Kyle and unfortunately Patsy also, though, with the maniacal laugh is so funny to me. That almost made it worth it, like his appearance. I'm just like, I am slapping Dracula. <laughs> yeah, it is also weird for me to see mustache Dracula. That's just not a look I'm super familiar with for Dracula, and it just seems a little bit off every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's like mustache and eyeliner Dracula. Oh, totally. Well, I mean, Dracula's got to have eyeliner. Although, now that you mention it, the logistics of that and the mustache are kind of confusing because... He can't look at himself in the mirror while he's shaving or applying eyeliner. So you'd think both of them would be a lot sloppier. Yeah. Did Vincent Price ever play Dracula? Not on film, but I have the feeling that in his day-to-day life, kind of on a regular basis. I just like at home talking to his cat. (laughs) Yeah. I don't drink wine. Do I, Fluffykins? I ask because I was kind of seeing a little bit of like a young Vincent Price in some of these drawings. I can see that. The depictions of Dracula are, especially his face, I think, are a little bit inconsistent. When he's in full, like, maniacal Dracula mode, he doesn't look like Dracula anymore or even really like a person. And just the details of his face are a little bit fuzzy. And this is another issue where we have three different inkers working on it. So I think that may be part of the cause of that. Mm. I don't know. Probably the most interesting thing in the issue to me was, you know, that moral question of, okay, well, this person's really shitty, but I need their help. And I did promise them I wouldn't murder them. (laughs) What do you do? I got some pretty strong feelings about that, honestly. I feel like that's something that you come up against in fiction a lot. And the way that the issue is kind of couched is, okay, yes, Dracula is a unrepentant, mass-murdering fuckwad who has been a source of evil in the universe for like 500, 600 years at this point. But he is not a fibber. So doesn't that make him an inherently noble being in some way? Mm Mm-hmm. The bit of that that I did enjoy is at the beginning when Son of Satan and and Dracula are, like, kind of negotiating. Like, I really got the sense that Son of Satan is totally lying to him, but, like, not having a great time coming up with, like, how do you construct a good lie? And so there's, like, a lot of really awkward pauses. (laughs) He's like, yes, um, we have honor in hell. I know what you mean. It's especially ironic that he's so bad at lying because, like, his dad is the father of all lies. The Prince of Lies. Yeah. Take a page. Dad's (laughs) book. Son of Satan. You'd think he would. But on the other hand, maybe it makes sense that in his quest to deny his father's influence over him in every way, he has just developed such an aversion to lying that it's hard for him to go back on it even a little bit. Like, Mm -hmm. that's the one context it makes sense for me in terms of him being like, well, I wouldn't want to break my word, so I guess I'll let Dracula go back to killing hundreds of people every year. 
Mm-hmm. After we slaughtered all of his minions. That's the other part of it, too. Like, he has no repentance about killing all of those people. And Val is a little bit iffy about it. But then when it gets to Dracula, there's... Again, in this specific scenario, it is because they promised him they wouldn't kill him. But the idea that these villains are somehow inherently noble because they will not lie or they can be men of their words is really troubling to me because I feel like you can be a good person and still occasionally tell lies. It is much harder to be a good person and murder people. And it seems like those things are flipped on their end in terms of fiction morality, you know? Yeah. Like, so, for example, your partner puts a lot of work into cooking something. They're really excited about it. <laughs> and they ask you how it is, and it's bad. You just kill them, right? Right. I mean, that's apparently that is the lesson we are to glean from this. Because telling the truth would be cruel, and when it comes down to it, between lying and murder, murder is the lesser of two evils. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, do these pants make me look... Hold on. <laughs> yeah, so there's that aspect of it, and then there's also, like, the characterization of Dracula. I mean, it varies wildly, not just in general, the characterization of Dracula, because he's a public domain character, so everybody has had a crack at Dracula and has taken him in a billion different directions. But also, specifically Marvel Comics, Dracula is a character that has been, like, picked up and put back down in different places by so many different creative staffs that it is hard to get a read on who Dracula really is. But if you go through just, like, a list of all of the things that the Marvel Universe Dracula has done, it is like Longitude. It is all over the map. Mm. Like, he fought for the Confederate Army at one point, I guess? Aww. Which I, I think is a pretty decent shorthand for evil. So you have writers that take him in the, like, complete unrepentant evil direction. And then other writers who see him as, like, a tragic figure who had this life or unlife shoved upon him. And then other writers who will, like, make him into the noble villain, who one aspect of that would be he would never go back on his word. And that is a kind of villain that you see a lot, and it always kind of bothers me, because I, I feel like it is just kind of conflating power with worthwhileness. Like... He's noble in the sense that he's an aristocrat, but that's pretty much it. And you get that with, like, Doctor Doom does that shit, too, although I definitely like Doctor Doom a lot more than I like Dracula. I would not be totally surprised if they had teamed up at some point, either. But it always kind of reminds me of, like, that roadhouse phenomena, where, like, Patrick Swayze has no problem killing, like, all of the dude's underlings before he gets to the main bad guy who has been orchestrating all of the super evil shit in the movie. And then when he gets to that guy, he's about to kill him. And it's like, nah, it would be wrong to kill him and just starts to walk away. And then the guy will, you know, like pull out a knife from his boot or a pistol that he'd been concealing. And then he has to turn around and actually kill him. But there's that idea that gets introduced that like his life is somehow worth more, I think, gets kind of rolled into the whole idea of the noble tyrant. Yeah, gross. So, 
Dracula aside, as you said, there is some housekeeping things that get taken care of in this issue. You get Kyle being able to move around again. Also, by the way, confirms my choice of him as the worst defender last time. It really does. Flying around like an asshole, (laughs) scaring (laughs) the hell out of Clea, not leaving a note. You are absolutely right. You read that situation correctly. I had had the vague recollection that Dracula was going to be showing up in this issue, and I thought he had something to do with it. But no, you were totally right. And so, yeah, it turns out that his mystically born ailment or relapse into his previous almost deadness has somehow intermingled with his strong as two strong men at night thing. And now at night he's fine, and in the day he's paralyzed. Yeah, due to uh, demon malfeasance. It's unclear if that is in any way connected to the six-fingered hand thing. But it's a suspicion that Doctor Strange has, doesn't he? I think I missed that. It's on page six, and it's, it's actually Kyle extrapolating from what Doctor Strange was trying to tell him before he, okay. he got cut off by Kyle being surprised that Gargoyle was there. Oh, that makes sense. I thought Steve just got distracted because he was about to tell Kyle, like, hey, calm down, buddy. Cease your acrobatics. Like, I thought he was just like, I'm pretty sure this is going to go away once the sun rises. And Kyle just cut him off. And it was like, yeah, but what have you guys been doing? And Steve was like, oh, an opportunity to talk about me. Yes, let's do that instead. Right. And then launches into the whole demon hand business. And we get to see that nice picture of the flashback of the evil finger puppets. So Mm -hmm. that was nice. But then, yeah, you're right. I guess Kyle is the like, hey, maybe those demons had something to do with me for some reason, I guess. And Steve's like, probably. Mm -hmm. But Kyle's behavior when they come home is weird for a couple of reasons. First of all, they come home and the door is not just unlocked, but open. And they're all kind of freaked out about that because they're in Greenwich Village. And that's not a good idea, especially when you've got a sanctum sanctimonious that is filled with mystical bric-a-brac that could probably end the world in some way. Why was the door open and unlocked? Well, one can only assume it's Kyle just being a fucking irresponsible guy. Yeah. We saw that he left earlier when he was like zooming around outside and was so excited to be able to move again. He left through the window, which was what freaked Clea out. Did he then just go downstairs, open the door and then go back inside? Like, was he laying a trap for the defenders? What was going on? Oh, maybe he was. Maybe it was like part of what he thought was a practical joke, because when they come in, they're all freaked out and he like flies down from the top of the stairs to scare them. It's also weird that none of them recognized him or recognized his voice. Like, they knew he was there, they hear his voice saying something, and they're like, who could that be? I think Val recognized him because she reaches up to the air, grabs him by the ankle, and just, like, slams him into the ground. She does say, whoever you may be, blah blah blah, but I I think she secretly enjoyed smashing Kyle into the ground. I think you're right. That was actually my theory as well, is that the defenders are just like, oh, we have plausible deniability to beat the shit out of Kyle because we think he's an intruder. Cool. Yeah. So the narrative is because it was dark, right? 
and that's, that's yeah. how disguises work in in comics. If it's a little <laughs> bit dark and you you fly around or you have a trench coat, you're good. Well, and you see in their only appearance in the comic book, Wong and Clea, uh, you see their silhouettes. I'm assuming they're the ones who lit the brazier that then did light up the room and allowed people to see who Kyle was. So I'm guessing they were just sitting there the whole time being like, all right, we'll let them have their fun and rough them up a little bit. But before it goes too far, we'll turn the lights on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like Wong and Clea, I mean, we know this about Wong because we do the segment on him, but Clea too are like the real kind of behind the scenes power that keeps the Sanctum running. I think you're absolutely right, which makes it worse that then Steve is like, you know what, let's team up with Dracula. Let's let him join the Defenders, too. After they just let the Gargoyle join the Defenders, right after he tried to sacrifice Patsy's life to demons as part of, like, an economic incentive program for his town, they're like, yeah, okay, you can join our team. Then the very next issue, they're like, Dracula? Sure, hop on board, buddy. Yeah. I mean, part of the reason why it was especially disconcerting that they let Dracula join the team is because previously he had tried to murder Wong and Steve. Like, he kidnapped and turned Wong into a vampire. And then Steve, I think, also got turned into a vampire briefly during the rescue attempt. And so... Without even consulting with Wong, who is sitting right there, they don't say anything to him. They're like, oh yeah, that guy who kidnapped and assaulted you? He's not so bad. Hmm. And we also get kind of a doubling down on what a fuck-up Isaac was in the last issue. Because until it came up with Patsy getting the phone call that Dolly Donahue is in the hospital and not likely to survive the night, I had kind of forgotten that it was Isaac who just flung a fireball at her. Mm. Like, that is super fucked up. And in this, I think we're supposed to feel pathos that like, oh, Patsy, she's just lashing out at him. She can see that he feels bad. I'm like, no, he really did just try to murder a middle-aged housekeeper. Like, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. The Defenders don't just need a better vetting process for prospective members. They need a vetting process of some kind. Because the whole show up and say, well, I'm on the team now, so they're on the team, it doesn't really seem to be working for them. Yeah, and this idea, too, of, so with Dracula, honesty, and with gargoyle, repentance, would be in this panacea. That's really goofy. I agree. I did get a lot of satisfaction out of Patsy just losing it with the gargoyle being there. <laughs> and <laughs> she does this amazing, like, tackle and starts to, like, do some MMA-style ground and pound on him. <laughs> but when she tackles him, she says, I hope you're darn well satisfied. <laughs> Which is like, <laughs> if I ever have the wherewithal to tackle somebody and say that, that's going to be amazing. <laughs> it's a really odd language choice, especially when she's like, right there next to the son of Satan, who it's not like he's called Damien Hextrum, you know? <laughs> Kyle being able to fly again during nighttime hours is one piece of housekeeping that gets addressed in this issue. There are two other main ones. One of them, real quick, is a couple other Valkyries show up in Val's room and are like, 
hey, we're about to do some shit. You want to come? And she's like, nah, see ya. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't know what they were getting up to in terms of maybe stuff that was going on in other comics, but I thought good on Val, man, because they don't just say want to come do some shit. They say, like, we need you or we're not going to be able to do this shit. And mm-hmm. she's like, nope, you'll figure it out. <laughs> I'm going to stay here with my friends. Yeah, I mean, good for her for drawing clear boundaries. When you get a scene like that, I feel like it's usually either set up for something that's going to happen later, or else editorial trying to keep an eye on continuity and say, we need it to make sense that Val isn't there in this other title when this happens. So we'll get a few panels of that in here. And this definitely feels more like the latter. And it was fine. Nice reminder that Val is part of that whole world and is uh, kind of transitioning to a different phase in her life. Not too many notes on it other than, yeah, good for her for setting boundaries. Yeah, totally. And I mean, also a reminder that she was like the boss back there. Yeah. Um, she was like, hey, you guys got to go find a new leader. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why she is called Valkyrie, despite being one of a lot of Valkyries. Mm-hmm. She's the only one that gets the definitive article in front of her name. Yep. The other main piece of housekeeping that we get is, as you said, the reiteration of the fact that Patsy's mom is super duper evil. And wow, do we get that? We do. But did you feel like there was a little bit of an attempt to make it a sympathetic evil? That, you know, when death comes for us, we get desperate? Or did you not read that into it? I can see that a little bit, but after that, it makes the frankly unsupported claim, or we don't know where they get this idea from, frankly, that had Hellcat's merger with Avarish been successful, Dorothy Walker would have lived, and she would have had no regrets. I think the fact that they they spell out that she would have had no regrets is like, okay, that is maybe not trying to redeem her at all in that decision or humanize her choice. Yeah, I guess that's true. When I read it, I though did just, I think I said out loud, how do they know? Yeah, I said this. I thought the same thing. I was like, well, I mean, I guess it is the omniscient narrator kind of, but like, we're not used to seeing it to that extent. It's like, if this had happened, then this woman wouldn't have felt bad at all. Yeah, I mean, just like devil's advocate, no pun intended, if I'm laying there and some fiery demon guy shows up and I'm dying and he's like, hey, you want to not die? I'd probably be like, tell me more. Well, and we've already discussed the fact firstborn children, you know, first pancake never turns out quite right. (laughs) That's why you need a waffle iron. Hmm. I'm losing track of the metaphor there, but I do like the idea that you could fill every cranny with soul syrup. Mm. Ah, soul there you syrup. go. Steered it back into metaphor territory. <laughs> I was just talking waffles. Delicious. They're real good. That whole scene, though, the gravesite scene with Damon and Patsy standing there in the rain, there is some weird shit going on in that scene. Like, were you getting weird vibes out of that scene? Not from Patsy, but from Damon, I was like, it's a very awkward, he's like, um, hmm, is this where we kiss? 
I'm going to touch her shoulder. No, I'm not going to touch her shoulder. This is not appropriate. Or is it? <laughs> like, that's kind of how the panels read to me, because the last one. It's hard to tell his expression, because his eyebrows are so arched. Yeah, so there's that going on. There is also the fact that, and this will come up later in Sartorially Speaking, but Patsy is wearing what appears to be a trench coat with no clothes on under it. Oh, that's funny. I, I did note that it was a flasher-like getup. And I think maybe the fact that this is a Dracula-centric issue had me thinking of old Gothic horror literature. And so it was just like, oh, Mary Shelley. Like, you know about her allegedly having sex with Percy Shelley for the first time on her mother's grave. I did not know about that, but that sounds weird. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe that was just that was in my head in that scene. I was like, oh, man. Are they going for a Mary Shelley here? I don't know. It made me think maybe that was what Damon Hellstrom was going for. Hmm. Or we're just waiting for Frankenstein's monster to show up. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, he is canonically another Marvel character who has interacted with Dracula on numerous occasions. Yep. It wouldn't be a stretch. No. Nope. Yeah, I know. I was glad in that scene. I was like, dude, I don't think she wants you to give her a hug right now. Yeah, there has been a weird kind of one-sided flirtation with Son of Satan and Patsy so far. With him, like, name-dropping his dad all the time and her being like, um, I'm still kind of grieving my mom. And him being like, okay, 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 I'll just, you know, be here. It's just that you've got hell in your name, and, you know. <laughs> um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but my dad is kind of... A big deal down there. And to be clear by big deal down there, I mean he's the ruler of hell. And I'm not saying he's got a big dick. <laughs> Although. <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, no wonder Patsy doesn't like this guy. I don't think that's necessarily what he's actually saying, but. Mm, okay, okay. But there is a weird bit, too, where like when Son of Satan is interacting with Dracula, we know that Damon is not a big fan of his dad, but when Dracula's like, Satan ain't no big thing, he is definitely like, uh-uh, my evil-hated nemesis of a father is a way bigger evil jerk than you are. I know, he gets riled up. He calls Dracula a pig. And Dracula does this thing, which he does a couple of times, where he calls people whelp, like W-H-E-L-P, but... I kept reading it as like, Welp! <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess when Dracula gets mad, he gets folksy? The other weird Son of Satan thing that I noticed is when he is at the gravesite and he changes into his devil dad duds, the way that he does that is to hold aloft three fingers on each hand, giving the trident symbol, and then a flash of hellfire burns away his civilian duds, and leaves his Son of Satan gear there. I had not seen that before, and the trident as a symbol of the devil is not one that I was familiar with. Were you? Not a trident per se, but you know, there's all those depictions of Satan with like a, a pitchfork. Sure. And I mean, he does carry his trident that is made of psycho-sensitive metal. I almost called it psychosomatic metal, which I guess would just be, it's only metal if you think it is. But as a hand signal, I was not f familiar with the 
throwing up the trident. Like, you know, I've seen the, like, you know, the, the devil horns for, like, rock and roll. And I'd seen those before. But the three fingers, especially the three middle fingers being held aloft in the air as he does that, made it look like he was doing his Nixon impression. Mm. Like, I kept picturing him saying, I am not a crook. And maybe it is when he does his Nixon impression, because Nixon was such an evil piece of shit, that that is how he turns into the son of Satan. I am not a crook. Yeah, I can see him being jowly in that mm-hmm. scene. Either that or he's like at a baseball game and he wants six hot dogs. <laughs> he's trying to flag <laughs> the guy down. That is one less hot dog than Shaft canonically ate in his debut novel without realizing it. But afterwards, he was quite impressed with himself, <laughs> if I recall. You recall correctly. That is, I think, my favorite scene in literature. <laughs> it's so many hot dogs. It is so many hot dogs. <laughs> it's, I love that scene so much where he's just standing on the corner and he's thinking about the case he's working on and the hot dog vendor is like, that'll be seven fifty, mister. And he's like, what? It's like, you ate seven hot dogs and four, and four containers of orange juice in a fugue state. And he's like, did I? Well, good for me. I can see that, though, when you're mentally problem-solving something and you got, like, I don't know, a bowl of popcorn or a bag of chips. Okay, well, Corey, what is the most hot dogs you have ever eaten without realizing it? I, w- I would know. I didn't have any vendor to point it out to me. Ah, good job. That was a trick question. Ah. But we do get here that even if that is how he is ordering his hot dogs, he is still one less good at hot dog eating than Shaft. So I should hope so. <laughs> and he's not even drinking any orange juice that we know of. Yeah. And he's probably counting them. <laughs> One. Oh, he Ooh. totally is. He I knows mean... he's eating those hot dogs. <laughs> yeah. Son of Satan, no shaft. Sorry. We get a little brief look at vampire politics. What did you think of Gordsky? <laughs> Yeah, so the thing with that character that I guess I didn't really like was, again, this thing of like, well, he's poor, you know, and um, ugly. Right. And and therefore just unsympathetic, and it's okay if he perishes, and definitely not fit to lead Dracula's army. Like, he, it's just, there's not much nuance to the character. No, and you're right, there is that element of classism to it. The one thing that I did really appreciate about him is the scene in which he is talking to uh, Puishant. Is that what his name is? Puishant? Yeah, I don't know how you're supposed to say it. That's probably right. I suspect you are supposed to say it like an old prospector trying to say the word Puissant. Puishant. <laughs> Much like we got Avarish. <laughs> Avarish? Puishant? Bad Jiminy? I don't think old prospector said jibbity. I think you made that up. Corey, you know that I do extensive research into all of my characters. Uh-huh. By jibbity is definitely a very, very common prospector expression. It relates to the word jib in sailing, and in order to get to the next gold rush, a true prospector had to be 
really, really a competent uh, sailor. And so the two expressions they would use most were, by jibbity and hoist the spinnaker. Oh, I always thought it was like uh, an old prospector thing of um, like affirmation, because like short for I like the cut of his jib. Uh, again, that is still a sailing term. Huh. I like the cut of his jib because it will enable him to get to the next gold rush all the faster. Jibbity. Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, when Gordsky is talking to Puishan, you see... <laughs> You see, he is having a fairly sedate conversation with him, and drool is just dribbling out of his mouth. And that is an aspect of vampire culture that you do not normally see, because it looks like he is maybe new to having fangs, and thus is unable to close his mouth effectively. So, I liked that. I thought that was some nice world-building of vampire lore, is that they're just a bunch of drooly messes all the time. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. A lot of the other ones have their mouths open pretty wide, too. Mm-hmm. Well, Corey, was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get into the minutiae? There's an exclamation that I think it's Nighthawk says, What in the name of hell, Foster? Mm-hmm. That is the artist who did Prince Valiant. Yeah, that's that's what uh what Google told me. But I didn't get why that would be a thing anyone would say. Because of Gargoyle's appearance. He looks very much like a Hal Foster creation. Oh, okay. In a way, actually very similar to the demon, the DC character. He looks a lot like the demon, and I don't think that is a coincidence. And the demon's appearance had been borrowed from a old Prince Valiant strip. Oh, no kidding. Mm -hmm. Did you ever read that? I know it was in the Boston Globe when we were growing up. Yeah, I sort of skimmed it. It wasn't very interesting as a kid. I had the same thing. I think it was the one comic strip in the newspaper that I was like, this is not for me. In a way that I didn't with, like, I would still read Doonesbury and Funky Winkerbean every week, and those were clearly not for me. But there was something that was intimidating and just kind of impenetrable about Prince Valiant to me. Yeah, couldn't get into it. It was certainly no Garfield. No way. Although, Prince Valiant did love lasagna and hate Mondays. I wouldn't know. But what a coincidence. Ambivalent towards spiders, though. Mm. You ready to get into the minutiae? Yeah, why not? Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutiae. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutiae. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutiae. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you feel like starting off with? I struggled with best and worst. Why don't we uh, get that out of the way? All that... right. Let's give that one a go. I had some trouble with that as well. Who did you have as your best defender? And who did you have as your worst offender? I had kind of a switcheroo, actually, on both. So, for best, I'll just read my notes. Damon, I guess. He got rid of all the vampires, and he was honest. But at what cost? Mm. But Val said no to the other Valkyries and had to pursue her own path, which is really hard to do. You know? Uh, so, good job. Also, she nabbed Nighthawk out of the air and whacked him on the ground like a sack of potatoes. So, <laughs> I'm going to go with Val. I think that is a wise decision. I had Val as a potential pick in that category, as a strong contender. 
I also had Patsy as a pretty strong contender for being able to compartmentalize her grief to the extent that she was and still be pretty effective in a campaign. Nice work on that front. And, you know, I have a certain affinity for people who are able to effectively repress their emotions. It's a skill that doesn't doesn't get a lot of love these days. I mean, it is certainly the coping technique that we were taught growing up. Yeah, I like the one that goes, get a feeling, bottle it up, keep bottling it, and when that bottle fills up, get a bigger bottle, and eventually, you'll die. Also, work hard. Oh, yeah. That one didn't take as much. But ultimately, I decided to go with Clea because uh, I appreciated her knowing just the right amount to let the defenders beat up Kyle without killing him before <laughs> turning on the light switch. Oh, good job, Clea. Conversely, I had kind of the opposite problem with worst offender because I wanted to give it to a lot of people because I feel like a lot of people did bad jobs in this issue. I wanted to give it to Kyle for being such a goddamn fucknut. That being said, I did appreciate that even in his assholery, even the extent to which he backslides into it in this issue, he still did not allow himself to wallow in self-pity the way he has in the past. Uh, I appreciated that. Mm -hmm. Kind of tempted to give it to the son of Satan, because... Uh, Good job, I guess, but also if you get the chance to kill Dracula, you kill Dracula. Yeah, and also don't Frankenstein on a lady when she's grieving. Yes, another good reason. So, I, very tempting to give it to him. Steve, for being like, oh, Dracula, yes, all aboard. Welcome to the Defenders. Can I get you a complimentary robe? But I mean, all of the Defenders kind of went along with Steve on that, so it doesn't feel completely fair to single him out. And ultimately, as much as I wanted to give it to all of those Defenders, if you have the opportunity to pick Dracula as the worst, you pick Dracula as the worst. And he is a Defender in this issue, and he is Dracula, so fuck it. He's fucking Dracula. He's the oh. worst Defender. Good call, man. I always screw up on that loophole. I mean, they practically gave him a fucking membership badge like i think he might be wearing a defender's lanyard instead of his normal medal that he won for sucking blood <laughs> defender's lanyard i like that the idea they all have to like badge into strangers apartment well, that makes it especially galling that uh kyle went ahead and left the fucking door open like mm -hmm. steve's probably being like kyle why do i even bother printing out these lanyards you know steve's is like number one uh-huh. I wonder if on the cover that is what is going on with Dracula's little uh, chest insignia there. It looks like maybe he's a Decepticon. Yeah, I just thought that was... He's got a white ruffly shirt and a torn ascot. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. See, I think even when he is being mind-controlled by up to six demons or whatever, he would still make sure that his presentation was right. I mean, that's the kind of asshole Dracula is. Oh, yeah. Uh, who did you have as your worst offender? So conversely to her being in your best offender category, one of my contenders for worst was Patsy, because after having gone through so much shit, she didn't take the time to 
be like, you know, fuck all this. I need to go take care of myself. Hmm. And basically, like, went to work sick, so to speak, you know. It's like, needed time to recover. And due to that, did not a great job and got into a scrape where she had to get rescued by Gargi, which is how I call the gargoyle. No, I figured. But then... I thought, wait a minute, no, she's just written that way because they are trying to redeem Gargoyle, but I can't nominate the writers. And also Gargoyle <laughs> did throw that fireball that blew up Patsy's mom's house and yeah. her, her housekeeper, and they also wrote him in a way that made him benefit from her bad situation, so I'm totally giving it to the Gargoyle. Fair enough. Yeah, everybody seems to be willing to gloss over this whole tried to sacrifice Patsy to the devils as part of an economic stimulus plan and threw a fucking fireball at a middle-aged housekeeper. Like, what part of that is redeemable? None. Like, yes, he apologized, but that was prefaced by him saying, like, well, what would you have done? My town was uh, falling under the influence of... Uh, beatniks or whatever <laughs> that's probably just what he sounds like i the other thing that really bugged me about that is like if you preface anything by saying i am a foolish old man then it's fine you know i just had a birthday i'm looking forward to trying that out yeah just do something really dumb and <laughs> dangerous and say that no, I, I think uh, hopefully we've, I've been we've... considering getting back into shoplifting, maybe. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, man. No, we, we have we have uh, decades ahead of us before we can employ that in earnest. I, oh, man. I fear. <laughs> slash hope. Fine. Well, this category has come up tangentially, but sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue do you want to talk about? Do you remember that poster of the former mayor of Portland, Bud Clark, where it says expose yourself to art and he's like mm -hmm. flashing a nude statue? Yes. Yeah, that Patsy's <laughs> outfit <laughs> reminded me of that poster randomly. Yeah, I think that must be a coloration issue. I think maybe she was supposed to be wearing her costume under the trench coat or something, but it is colored in in a way that makes it look like she is just not wearing anything under a mini trench coat. Mm -hmm. And that was a weird choice as to what to do when going to your mom's grave. Yeah. Now, to be fair, it does seem like the kind of outfit that her mom would have fucking hated. And she's not on the best of terms with her uh, deceased mom, seeing as her mom did try to sell her to demons. Mm -hmm. Not even top tier demons. Yeah, and was mean to her when she was a child and all of that. Not good. Yeah, but still, odd choice of morning wear. Yeah, and that it's complemented by what I can only imagine are galoshes. I mean, we can't see the bottom of them, but it's very rainy. Mm -hmm. And so she's like, I'm going to get a really appropriate jacket and really appropriate footwear. And then just, you know, nothing else. Yeah, I, I noticed that as well. Also, you do see that Damon is wearing a similar trench coat before he does his Nixon impression and therefore turns into Son of Satan. But uh, he is definitely, you see, the shirt cuffs poking out under it. So they do know how to draw clothing under a trench coat, and they just decided not to in Patsy's case. Mm -hmm. Which seems like an odd decision. 
The main thing I was struck by fashion-wise in this issue is all the different variations of Dracula capes we have going on. I was a little bit disappointed that Patsy didn't wear her shadow cloak, but you have three distinct long capes with Dracula collars going on. You have Steve's, which has the pointy little hooks that I guess he can hang up the laundry with. Mm -hmm. You have Son of Satan's reversible red and yellow Dracula cape. And then Dracula shows up, and as if to prove, hey, this is my eponymous cape, his cape is wearing a little cape. Oh, yeah. Right. Did you catch that? Like, he's got the full Dracula cape, but then there's like a little half cape that's on in the top over it. And it is just like, yeah, that's how Dracula I am, motherfucker. Yeah, that's, that is a weird look. I told you the Vivian Dracula story, right? Yes, yes, you did. That was funny. I don't think I mentioned it on the show. I, I think it maybe came up on the What the Duck, but uh, we have this friend named Vivian, who's I think 10 now, but I had brought some tiny jars over to her so that she could, you know, make potions or whatever in them. And she got very excited. And her dad told me like, oh, yeah, she she loves these. She's been really into reading the Harry Potter books lately, and she wants to practice her divinations. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, doesn't seem like that would be part of a potion thing. But she came out wearing this giant, like, Dracula cape. And so I was like, oh, are you a Dracula? And she's like, no, I'm not a Dracula. And she was, and I was like, well, you look like a Dracula. And she was just like, uh, would a Dracula have this? And she pointed to this big brooch in the front. And I was like, Absolutely. That's like that medal that Dracula wears around that he probably won for drinking blood. Did you win that brooch in a blood drinking contest? And she was like, oh, well, what about this? And then she flips me off. <laughs> and I was really taken aback. And then I noticed that she had like seven tiny rings on that one finger. And I guess she was saying that a Dracula wouldn't wear that much jewelry, which is not a Dracula trope I was familiar with, but it really looked like she was just flipping me off. And I was like, oh, okay, you've got rings on. Um, just a hint, you might want to split those up on some different fingers. And she looked confused for a second, was like, why? And I was like, no reason. And then she put it together and she was like, oh, middle finger. And gave me a look like real mature hub. <laughs> Zing. Yeah, it was one of my favorite interactions in a long time. But apparently she is not a Dracula, and apparently Draculas would not wear all of their rings on their middle finger. Good to know. Mm -hmm. And they also are canonically unable to flip a bird. <laughs> exactly. I'll drop the, the more you know music in here. Thank you. Any other fashion? The only other observation I had is the variety of Viking hats on page 12. I had the same note. You have the one standard, like, longhorn Viking helmet that one of the Valkyrior is wearing. And the other one, I was wondering if she was, like, a trainee Valkyrie? You get these itty-bitty horns. <laughs> you get these itty-bitty horns on top of, like, a beanie-type thing. Like, is she a Valkyrie in training, and that's the headgear they gave her? Or does she maybe work at the Valkyrie hot dog on a stick stand? Oh, man. What a job. Oh, they make you hand-press the mead in front of everybody? <laughs> Just by jumping up and down on giant bees? That's how you make mead, right? 
There's not pogo sticks involved with hot dog on a stick, right? I have no idea in my mind, maybe. They have those. I remember there was one at the at the Fox Run Mall, I think, when I was a kid. And they mm-hmm. had to wear tall hats. Yeah, that's what yeah. I was talking about. They were like beanie hats, though. But like tall beanies? Mm-hmm. Primary colors, so we got, she's, just, she's just missing the blue. Yeah, and maybe uh, maybe those little horns are a little propeller that spins her around. I don't know. Who in the heck came up with that job? They're just like, well, these teenagers aren't miserable enough. So. I don't know. I honestly bet there is some dark and sinister motive behind it that I just don't want to look into. It seems like every time I turn over the capitalism rock, it's a different kind of maggot, and I don't want to look at it. Yeah. Corey, I think it's time for our Battle of the Band Names. We did not have a Battle of the Band Names last week because the show was unfortunately hijacked by a couple of assholes named Gary and Ed. Um, Yeah, when I came back into the studio the next day, there were just like half-empty mason jars filled with, I don't know, some kind of a weird chalky substance. I didn't want to look too far into that but the week before last we saw the phantom threshold the college indie rock darlings successfully defend their title against this sentient assemblage so this week what band name did you find in this comic that you want to put up against the phantom threshold hmm so I'll start with a question. I, I think this may have come up when we read the last issue, but did, did we have the Six-Fingered Hand as a band name? I didn't see it in my notes, but I couldn't remember if that was one or not. I can't remember either. I think we might have. Maybe that was one that was already an actual band. No, I, lo- I looked it up and it's, and it's not, but it seems super familiar. Well, anyway, okay. we, can, we can have that in the, the backlog if needed. It's not my favorite, but... They are a guitar rock band, much like the Helicasters. Um, I'm not familiar with the Helicasters. Uh, it's three guys that were like studio musicians, very accomplished guitar players, all played guitars that um, looked like uh, Fender Telecasters. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. So that's the six-fingered hand, you know, because they play guitar real good. Right. I was wondering if that might be the purpose of the six-fingered hand. Maybe... It's a devil went down to Georgia or like the movie Crossroads that didn't have Britney Spears in it type situation where you need a six fingered hand for a specific kind of demonic guitar. That's why Steve Vai lost to Ralph Macchio. I could never, you know, I was like, that kid only had months to prepare for that role. How did he beat Steve Vai? Now you know. Now I know. All right. But yeah, no, that's like backlog one. I got some other choices, but why don't you go first? Okay, one that I don't know what kind of music they would necessarily play, but the name kind of cracked me up was Nether Trident. (laughs) Which is apparently the name of Son of Satan's psychosensitive metal pitchfork is his Nether Trident. Well, there's your answer. That's what they play. Psychosensitive metal. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, the psychosensitive metal of Nether Trident. Oh, I don't like the sound of that. I don't want to picture that situation. (laughs) Uh, What other ones did you have? I had 
The Vampire Strikes Back. Sure. Which I can't tell if that's, you know, probably a goth band, like, you know, in the vein of Bauhaus. But oh. it could also be, like, did I ever make you listen to Lee Scratch Perry, the reggae producer and also musician? He didn't make me, but I did listen to Lee Scratch Perry. He's got some really fucking weird stuff, and I could see him having, like, a Vampire Strikes Back theme. Hmm. See, I would just picture them doing, like, goth Bauhausy style covers of, like, Max Rebo band songs or the, the Cantina band, you know? Oh, I like that. Let's go with that. And <laughs> I did double check. It is not a band. It is a song by a cleverly named band, Salem's Pot. <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah. I had the Book of Demonicus, which seems a little bit on the nose. But I think my favorite is actually a typo that's in the book. I'm pretty sure it's a typo. But Son of Satan does what is called an antediluvian chant. But they misspelled antediluvian. It's supposed to be A-N-T-E diluvian, which means the era before the biblical flood. Mm -hmm. But this is, it's spelled in the book A-N-T-I diluvian, which means that it is opposed to floods. Wow. And I just think that's an interesting concept for a band. Just an anti-moisture band. Mm. Yeah, safety first. I like that. I had, a, I, I think my, my best for last is the writhing obscenities. Oh, shit, that's it. <laughs> what kind of music do they play? It's got to be dance music of some kind, right? Yeah, I'm thinking it's probably pretty dancey, but, you know, with kind of a gritty edge of some sort. I don't know. Maybe they got Steve Albini to help him out. Oh, that guy never helped anybody in his life. <laughs> okay, uh, Rick Rubin. All right, there we go. Sorry if we got any big shellac or tortoise fans listening. I just fucking hate Steve Albini. <laughs> yeah, ah, gosh, I like, I like that idea. Yeah, the writhing obscenities. Oof, that's evocative yeah yeah i think that should be our choice all right the gritty dance music the gritty dance core of the writhing obscenities there we go well Corey, the time has come for us to ask ourselves the question yet again behold or be gone this week, you were going to come up with one. What do you have for us? What concept are we going to have to decide whether we would like to embrace it or shove it to one side and damn it to hell? So, Hub, much like uh, Kyle Richmond in this book, would you rather have the strength of two men, superpowers, access to amazing technology, and great wealth, but only by night? If you had to be basically bedridden by day. Am I also friends with Steve Strange in this scenario? Up to you. You could be if you want to be. Yeah, I want to be because here's the problem I had with the whole situation as outlaid in this book. We see that it is specifically that his condition is tied to the sunrise sunset thing. Because when Son of Satan uses his daylight savings time powers and makes the sunrise three hours early, Kyle suddenly loses all of his strength. Kyle has virtually unlimited resources, unlimited technology, and a friend who can teleport him places. He basically just has to work the night shift, 
but he can buy a house in a place where the sun never rises, where you got like a two hour day. Mm. So he could just move there and then be confined to his bed for a period of time less than a regular night's sleep. I think he has an easy workaround for this problem that he has. Yes, my winter home is in Iceland. Yeah. He's super rich. He can have the winter home. And then anytime he wants, he's just like, hey, Steve, teleport me someplace. Because we see in this issue, Steve's teleportation powers are back to being a thing he can do whenever he feels like it. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, I would not like to be at the mercy of Steve's whimsy. But on the other hand, I mean, being super rich, being able to fly around and feel great the whole time I'm out of bed and being able to, using these workarounds, control essentially what hours I am incapacitated for doesn't seem that bad. Is that a behold? It is a behold. I mean, I like the sunshine fine, but gosh, if it's forever. See, that's the rub, man. All of it sounds awesome. It's like, you remember when I was a kid and I was really into that movie, The Lost Boys? Oh, yeah. I was like, it's like, it's just like the movie. You can... (laughs) You know, sleep all day and party Party all all night. night. It's fun to be a vampire. It's what I've always wanted. But then I was like, oh, shit, I really like gardening now. (laughs) I mean, you could do like, ideally, the time to water your plants is before the sunrise so that, uh, you know, they get the powers of it before evaporation kicks in. No, no, that's it's good horticulture. But I, I think I would I would actually at this stage in my life miss the sun too much. Yeah, I would love to have a sweet house in Iceland, though. Ooh. I could, I, honestly, yeah, I'd hook myself up with some fucking SAD lamps, the unlimited wealth and access to mystical teleportation are too tempting for me. Also, as a bonus, being able to fly and being as strong as two strong men, that just seems pretty nice. It's tough to pass up. It was a hard one for me. I'm a be gone, but only just barely. But you know, I will come hang out with you and I will stay up fucking late. (laughs) Nice. I appreciate that, Corey. Sure. And since it's going to be nighttime when we're in Iceland, you won't have to worry about those asshole birds trying to dive bomb you the whole time you're there. Oh, I don't know if they're diurnal or nocturnal, but it was only during the day that I got chased off by a lot of birds. So, Well, I will use my vast wealth and resources to develop some anti-bird technology. You could fly up and scare all those stupid Arctic churns away. And for you, that is just what I would do, Corey. All right, deal. Corey, what was your favorite sound effect in this book? Unless I miscounted, there were only three to choose from. Yeah, I think there was one in which a phone rang. Mm-hmm. That made the noise ring. Yep, so, eh. I went with what's kind of a trio. I don't know if the first one's intended to be a sound effect, but it's on page 15, and it goes, Dracula, smack, whack. Oh, the old Drac smack, whack. And then followed on the next page by crack. Yep. So you went with the smack, whack of the Drac attack? I did. I think I'm going to have to join you with that. I'm tempted by the crack, but ultimately... (laughs) (laughs) 
But uh, I got to go with the satisfying smack whack of watching Drac show up and smack the whack out of Kyle. Yeah. Opening his mouth outlandishly wide and Mm -hmm. looking totally bonkers while he does it with the little exposition dialogue block saying, fangs gleaming in the lamplight. Well, dental hygiene has got to be super important to his lifestyle. So, Corey, do you have a favorite Dracula? It's not Gary Oldman, that's for sure. Oh, uh, you don't like the creepy bunhead look? Nope. I think my favorite is probably, it seems kind of basic, but I watched the Bella Lugosi Dracula pretty recently, and that's a hell of a Dracula. Like, I can see why that caught on the way it did. Hmm. Yeah, gosh. I like Mia Christopher Lee pretty good, but man, Bella Lugosi was fucking great in that movie. And it's a tidy, like, 70 minutes long. Hmm. I haven't watched an old-timey movie in ages. I wonder, is that a, do you think that's a good use of 70 minutes? I think so. I mean, even at 70 minutes, there are, by modern standards, some pacing issues. But it has such a consistent look and feel to it as a movie. And there is just something kind of mesmerizing about Bela Lugosi's appearance and performance in the film. I really, really liked it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure The Vampire Strikes Back has a few songs about him. Yeah, I like the one that goes... Did you have a favorite panel in this issue? Yeah, there are some good choices. Uh, as I said, the, the one I talked about already, the, the smack whack of Drac slapping Kyle, was pretty funny, but I didn't go with that. I liked on page 8... Uh, what I called Silhouettes of Sadness. That, I think, was my favorite. It's oh. a really, really nicely drawn panel of just, like, everybody just kind of feeling bad. It looks like they kind of turned their back on her and are like, we'll let her have this moment of post-choking-out-the-gargoyle reflection as they just kind of stand there and are like, yeah. Yeah. It does have, like, everybody's posture in their silhouette. And it's just like, oh. Man, this sucks. Yeah. It's also only one of two panels in which Clea and Wong appear, and in both of those, they are in silhouette. Mm-hmm. It's also probably worth noting that Clea and Wong are the only two people who appear to be facing Patsy, and everyone else has turned their back on her. So you again see who in the Sanctum is expected to perform emotional labor. But yeah, no, I liked that one a lot too. I think that is probably my favorite. Other panels that I like, it already came up, the uh, drooling Gordsky panel. <laughs> On page six, we get a exposition panel that is kind of flashback to the events of the previous issue. But we once again do see the six-fingered hand. It is in full color in this one. And damn, do those finger puppets look goofy. It is so goofy. But I, I really like that. And you also see in that one, the gargoyle just kind of like hunched over. It's like he... Is there dog or something? It's just a weird, very like subservient posture that he's adopting towards the rest of the team. And given his propensity for wearing bondage gear, it's hard not to read that into the situation. Ah, uh, yeah. But it is a very nice panel. It's a good one. Any others? The only other choice I had was the sort of crystal castle on page 27. 
And that's when Damon is speeding up the clocks. Yeah, and it gives kind of a prism or crystal effect to mm-hmm. a Dracula's castle where it goes from being all dreary to like suddenly kind of psychedelic. Yeah, it's got a very Xanadu vibe to it. What was your pie not made out of steel this issue? What words did you like best? Much like you would like a pie if it were not made out of steel. I liked a bit of exposition on page six where Kyle is about to lose his powers and it says, Dawn breaks, urging the sun. Sun pushes forth. Great golden waves. Pretty good. I I had a couple to choose from. I really liked what I called the penchant for melodrama exchange. It is when Steve and Damon are going in through the mysteriously open front door, and Steve says, I sense no aura of danger, Valkyrie, no pall of evil. And Son of Satan is like, Do not be a fool, Doctor. You know as well as I that Satan is an actor who wears many masks. Deceit is his stock in trade. And then a mysterious voice from above says, You really have a penchant for melodrama, Hellstrom, you know that? And Steve's reaction is saying, A mocking voice? But who? Where? It's like when the voice said that Son of Satan had a penchant for melodrama. Steve was like, well, what about me? I can do melodrama too. I just really enjoyed that whole exchange. I think my favorite words, though, are when Dracula and the Defenders are storming Castle Dracula. Dracula does not reply. What use are words, he thinks, when violence speaks with such eloquence. Pretty good. Pretty good. Any others? So it's not really a words per se, but on page 27, when Dracula's flying away after Hellstrom tells him to take off, is he just being propelled by a stream of flautus? A stream of flautists? Let me take a look. Is he just farting like a crazy farting bat? Oh, flatulence, not flautists. (laughs) Flautus, like the... Oh, flautus. Yeah. I thought you were saying flautists. He's just being propelled by those those flute-wielding maniacs. <laughs> uh, yeah, it does look like he is kind of farting away. Big farting bat. Yeah. It does seem like the artist is kind of hedging his bets a little bit because it says, uh, for man turns to mist, mist to bat. And so it's like a, a halfway point between mist and bat there. Really... By trying to portray both there, it does make it look like a very flatulent bat. Oh, yeah. I guess that's... It is a good one for words, because if we didn't have those words, we wouldn't know that was missed, and not a giant farting bat. Right. Now, Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? Yeah, so in this issue, the Hulk, who I missed is taking a page from Kyle's book for a change. He really liked the way that that old bird nose allowed his self-pity to give way to gratitude and therefore find his strength. And so the Hulk's rule is to, you know, do your gratitude exercises, people, and uh, be specific about them so they really work. You know, don't just be like, oh, I'm grateful for the sunshine. Like, why are you grateful for the sunshine? Or like Kyle, you know, I'm grateful for my second chance. Okay, but why? You know, Hmm. I'm grateful for my second chance uh, so I can go fuck up Dracula. 
Gotcha. You know, if you're specific about them, they're supposed to work better. Yeah, it's important to have good form when you're doing your gratitude exercises if you want to have those rock-hard grats that are all the rage on Instagram. Um, I had the Hulk's rule being, if you have the chance to kill Dracula, you kill Dracula. Mm. Enough with this fucking, oh, is there still honor in hell? My evil dad can beat up your evil vampireness bullshit just kill fucking dracula he's a piece of shit Mm -hmm. yeah i think we're on the same page i got there through gratitude (laughs) but the important thing is that we gotta kill dracula he's no good i mean he has died a lot in the comics but he keeps getting better just kill him for good though (sighs) Mm. so frustrating they put a weird loophole in where you, you know how to kill dracula right uh stake in the heart yeah but apparently you've got to leave the stake in there or he'll get better. And at any point, you can remove the stake and he'll come back to life. Including at one point, he'd been dead for so long that he was only a skeleton. And I guess if you just, like, remove the stake from his rib cage, then he gets better. Oh, that's dumb. I agree. Not as dumb as not killing Dracula when you got the chance to kill Dracula. Mm. Man, fuck Dracula. And that's the Hulk's rules. (laughs) Well, Corey, I have just one more question I have to ask you. Mm. In the year of our Lord, 1981, and the month of our Lord, May, what Wong doings was Wong doing? Wong had decided he needed a little break from the sanctum sanctimonious and had uh, gone to Chicago to uh, eat some Polish sausages and Maybe catch a football game? In May. Mm Mm-hmm. Is there no football in May? There's no football in May. (laughs) Shit. I'm not much of a football fan. So, yeah, Wong was just there doing (laughs) some late spring, early summer tourism. And as he was doing his thing, he heard on the news that the police were actually chasing... Spider-Man up the side of a building, the Sears Tower. Oh. And he thought, well, that's weird. I thought Spidey was still back east. So he, he checked in with his sometimes associate, Madame Webb, and she was like, oh, that's weird, because Peter Parker just called me earlier to get the down low on, on this planned shooting that was going to go down at the New York Marathon. Oh. See Amazing Spider-Man number 216, May 1981. So knowing <laughs> that... <laughs> that that was going down. He's like, well, clearly he's not in Chicago, so what the fuck? So Wong decided to go check it out, went to Sears Tower, and it turned out that, for whatever reason, professional acrobat Dan Goodwin had decided to dress up as Spider-Man and climb the Sears Tower. And, you know, he's about uh, several floors up the, uh, the 1400 and change foot tall building, using some climbing hooks and some ropes and after about seven and a half hours of climbing the, the police basically tried to get him off by lowering a window washing scaffold <laughs> and Wong was like oh this is going to go sideways so he he jumped in went and talked to the cops and went and talked to Goodwin and basically uh, Goodwin had actually at this point put on some of those giant suction cup things and was like crab walking sideways away from the uh, window washing scaffold with the cops on it oh man 
Huh. He must have looked like one of those Garfield uh, toys that you used to see stuck in the rear windows of cars. Dude, did I ever send you? This is not in the Wong, but the I googled once "cool screensaver" or "cool desktop" or something, and it was that Garfield on the suction cups facing the window. Oh, that is cool. <laughs> That was the first thing that came up. It also oh. amuses me that you just Googled cool screensaver. I wanted to see what I would get, and I was delighted. Did you get it? Oh, no, it's like the new cartoon Garfield. I'm oh. Much more of an old old school cartoon. Yeah, you've always been a Garfield purist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, by cartoon, I mean animated, you know, the mm-hmm. CGI Garfield. Uh, so anyway, Wong negotiated Dan Goodwin to uh, make a deal so that no violence would go down. And the deal was, okay, well, you can finish climbing the building, but by the time you, you get to the top, you're going to have to surrender yourself so the cops don't shoot you. And Dan Goodwin's like, oh, okay, that's fair. Excellent. Now, would you classify Dan Goodwin as more of a threat or a menace? Um, I'd say a threat, because if he fell off, he could, he could squish people. Hmm. See, I was thinking he was a menace, but that's the yin-yang of this program. It's why it's nice to have this dialectic process. Mm. What's the sublimation of menace and uh, threat? Isn't that what we're all asking ourselves? So that's one thing that Wong was up to. (laughs) Cool screensaver. Other than that, Wong was, at this point, just pleasantly bemused by Steve Strange's bullshittery. See, Steve was having a kind of a down day and flipped on the television and saw Gilligan's Island was on TV. He was a little bit confused because Gilligan's Island had been canceled quite some time ago by 1981, but it was the Gilligan's Island made-for-TV movie, The Harlem Globetrotters on Gilligan's Island. And uh, Steve started watching it, and he started getting very concerned. <laughs> he, he, he was just like, well, somebody has to rescue these globetrotters. They can't be left in the hands of a buffoon like Gilligan. He got very, very concerned, and Wong was just like, Steve, you've seen the show before. It never bothered you that much. And he was just like, well, uh, frankly, I was relieved that these beatniks like Mena G. Krebs were removed from society, but the Harlem Globetrotters, what will become of Curly Neal? Think of Curly Neal, Wong! And halfway through the program, he just teleported himself away to start searching small islands (laughs) all over the world so that he could try to rescue the Harlem Globetrotters. He was gone for over a week. Wong couldn't get into touch with him to tell him that this was just a fictional TV show, and I'm not sure he would have if he could. But eventually, Steve did come home, and when he did, Wong informed him that the Harlem Globetrotters were just fine, and he needn't have bothered. And Steve was like, Well, I would have known that if I had been able to watch my news program that evening. This really is all the fault of Nightline for not being on on Friday evenings. (laughs) So Steve started lobbying the various television stations around the nation and made use of some of his government contacts. And thanks to his attention, on May 30th, Nightline expanded their schedule to be on five nights a week instead of four. And Wong didn't have either the heart or the attention span to tell him 
that the Harlem Globetrotters on Gilligan's Island had aired on a Thursday night. But that was the Wong doings <laughs> that Wong was doing in May of 1981. Dang. Yeah. If you could only rescue one Harlem Globetrotter from a desert island, which one would you rescue? I, I don't know the names of the Harlem Globetrotters, but I, I like the guy named Curly. That okay, because of his that would name. be Curly Neal. He was the trick dribbling specialist. I'm a big Metal Arc Lemon booster, but he wasn't on that show, so. That's a damn good name, too. Yeah. He was in The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. You don't say. Uh, I do say, at every opportunity, and some opportunities that I create, to talk about The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. Did we not see some version of the Harlem Globetrotters? I seem to remember doing this. Here. Yes, we did. We we actually went and saw them together on a couple of different occasions. Aha! Yeah, probably about 10, 12 years ago, something like that. It was all right. It was clearly a show that was aimed to children, and it was not the Harlem Globetrotters of our youth, but it was still an entertaining show. Mm. And I do still have a full Harlem Globetrotters outfit that I got. I've got the headbands, the sweatbands, the uh, shorts, and the jersey. And I still wear it sometimes. God, I love the Harlem Globetrotters. You wear it the whole thing? Sometimes. Oh, man. Mostly around the house. <laughs> That's fair. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us. I had a lovely time talking about this comic. That It seems like we had a slightly split opinion on how much we enjoyed it. I think I liked it a little bit better than you. But uh, still, nice time talking about it. I am looking forward to the next Offenders issue we will cover, where we are promised the rock and roll conspiracy featuring the Ghost Rider. Mm. I like me that flaming sculpt and kaboop pretty good. And we'll be back next week when we will talk about the new Teen Titans and their team up with Infinity Inc. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, good news! You can, probably. We can be reached either by our post office box, that's at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294, or, as this is the future, we can also be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. If you can't find us there, might try looking on social media. Maybe we'll be there. Maybe we won't. Who can say for certain in these uncertain times? But you may as well give it a try. Just uh, hack into your web server's browser and look at pizza.net and order a pizza pie for Sandra Bullock in a 1995 conspiracy drama. And if you do it correctly, then a secret menu will pop up, giving you the opportunity to find out my dumb thoughts on whatever pop culture I ingested recently. Lucky you. If you can't find us there, heck, there's one more place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. We'll be there. I will be sullenly nursing a cup of coffee to celebrate the advent of my Danny Ainge jersey year. Corey, what are you going to be up to? Oh man, if I was in our listeners' hearts while you were having your birthday, I would be making you a cake, my friend. Aw, shucks. Thank you, Corey. Anytime. And hey, if you'd like to give me a birthday present, I'm registered at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. 
If you'd like to support the show by becoming a patron, you will get access to all kinds of bonus content that is exclusive to our donors. One of those things is the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. New episode of that should be coming up soon. It's all recorded. I just need to finish editing it. But there's a number of episodes of those that are up. I think that number is around 30 right now. And there's also a ton of video reviews of classic comics that should be on there. And a whole bunch of other stuff as well. So just check that out and see what you like. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary way, great way to do that is to move a castle three hours into the future. I don't think that would actually have any effect on our podcast. But I'd like to see you try. I think it'd be fun. But if you don't feel like doing that and you don't know any antediluvian chants, why don't you leave us a review in a place where a review can be left? Well, what would be a thing that review might say, Corey? Um, nothing about nether tridents, that's for sure. No, I think that would get filtered out. Yeah. Um, finally, a use for my ears. Five stars. Good call. Put those things to work. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, this has been Hub. And this has been Corey. Saying... If you can kill Dracula, kill Dracula. Just do it. Sheesh. Uh, you can't see me right now, but I'm proving to you, Dracula, that I'm not Dracula, if you get my meaning. Huh? I'm flipping him off, Corey. Oh. Huh? Pretty good. Yeah, it's a callback. All right. Bye. Bye. And they knew it. That's a dollar ninety, mister. A dollar ninety? For what? That's seven hot dogs at twenty cents a hot dog and fifty for the orange juice. What seven hot dogs? Mister, you ate seven hot dogs. Seven hot dogs? Shaft felt the bulge of his stomach muscles at the belt. He'd been standing there thinking, and apparently he had gorged on seven of the long red cylinders of meat and miscellany off the greasy grill. Seven hot dogs. That was pretty good. For a second, he felt rather proud of himself. He was full, but he wished he could remember eating them. He handed the nervous Puerto Rican counterman two dollars. Okay, he said. What's so unusual about seven hot dogs? The Puerto Rican smiled at him, rang up the dollar ninety. Shaft belched. Whoosh. Seven hot dogs. He wished he could remember eating them. He wondered if people ever actually exploded. He'd never read about it happening.